Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for, once again, this break in the heat you gave us for the past couple of days as a bit of a taste of what's to come very shortly. I thank you for those uh, who could be here in your house this morning uh, to worship you all together as one. We pray for those who aren't able to be with us today, whether uh, it's connected to vacation or uh, getting ready for school or already on their way to college or uh, um, illness or pain. Uh, we pray that uh, you would be with them uh, and minister to them through your Holy Spirit as well. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not something that is disposable. It is not something that we can pick and choose what we think is relevant to the culture and society and time we live in and, and what we don't think is relevant anymore. Lord, we thank you that your entire word, if we seek to understand it and study it accurately, it gives us everything we need uh, to live this life. It reveals everything we need to know about you, and it gives us all the truths to navigate through this very confusing, uh, upheaved uh, world. Uh, we thank you for that. We thank you for the salvation that you have given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus and all that he went through uh, to give us our eternal hope. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a certain phenomenon that happens with us as human beings that when you're in that state of being half asleep and half awake, that's a very weird state, isn't it? <laughs> Those, the, the, you start to hear different sounds when you're in that state. Those sounds start to work their way into some sort of dream. Right? They become a part of what you're thinking about. They become a part of the dream you're having. If you fall asleep with the TV on, the sound effects and what people are saying become twisted into whatever you're dreaming about. And if you're watching some kind of thriller, you're all of a sudden running down the street with somebody shooting at you. <laughs> Your mind's sort of confused and incorporates everything together into the same experience. However, the one sound, and I think we can all agree on this, the one sound that your brain immediately detects is the sound of your alarm clock. There is nothing mistaking that sound. And there is nothing more infuriating, right, than that sound. That is one of the worst sounds in the human experience. When you hear that sound, you know you have to wake up. I'm glad you guys are all on the same page with me so far. Okay. Sometimes you are confused as to what time it is or even what day it is. What day is it right now? But you, well, thanks, Larry. I'm glad you know what day it is today. <laughs> but you instinctively know when you hear that sound of the alarm clock that you're supposed to wake up. Even if you don't know what day it is or what time it is, you know you're still supposed to be awake. In this book of Revelation, by the time we get to this point in Revelation, as you're reading through, Jesus has given messages to three other churches. He's given a message to the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. 
And now, in our passage this morning, Jesus gives a message to the church at Sardis in order to make them realize they're supposed to wake up. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Revelation. Uh, it is, spoiler alert, it's the very last book in the Bible. Just keep flipping until you get to it. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1 here. And we read this. To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, before we get into the rest of the gist of that, what on earth does the reference seven spirits of God refer to? Scholars disagree on the interpretation of this, but it has generally been narrowed down to two explanations. And they're both, the, the, the end goal is the same. The first is the easier one to explain, identifying Isaiah 11, 2 through 3's description of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit in seven ways. We read this uh, about the Spirit of the Lord uh, in Isaiah 11. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear. All the he and hises uh, in this passage are referencing the coming Messiah and how he would have the Holy Spirit resting upon him. So what do we have here? We have the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, with the first one being the spirit of wisdom. That's the first description of the Holy Spirit here. Number two, the spirit of understanding. Number three, the spirit of counsel. Number four, the spirit of strength. Number five, the spirit of knowledge. And number six, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. And number seven, he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear. But we can still take these different aspects and descriptions of the Holy Spirit and how he ministers to us and how he works in us, too. We have the Holy Spirit of wisdom. The Apostle James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let just ask God for it, and he will give it to you. Spirit of understanding. Very often in, in times of confusion, when nobody else around us can wrap their mind about a certain situation, we can understand what's going on because A, we have the word of God who's already explained it, that's already explained it for us, and B, we have the Holy Spirit that will uh, enable us to understand the word of God and be able to understand the situation. The spirit of counsel. This is connected to the spirit of wisdom, but if, if you need to know what to do in a certain situation, the Holy Spirit will give you that counsel. The Holy Spirit of strength. When you are at your very end physically, and you still have to go through the season you're going through, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of strength that, that enables you to, go, to continue to go through that season. The spirit of knowledge the, how, we've been talking about this uh, more and more lately, about looking at what's going on in the world, not with fear, not with confusion, not with the sky is falling mentality, but with fascination, 
Why? Because we have the knowledge of what's really going on out there and what God is lining up uh, for what he will do in end times. And we have the Holy Spirit to reveal these different things to us. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. The, the, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. And this isn't just, oh, God's going to strike me dead. This is a healthy fear of the Lord. This is a holy reverence for the Lord. Uh, not living your life flippantly and doing whatever you want to do and praying uh, flippantly, but seeing God for who he really is, the king of the universe, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the one who put together the human body and knows you better than you know yourself and having that holy reverence for him. And then we are also given the Holy Spirit to see things for how they really are. And to not judge people uh, by appearance, but by what God is doing in their life and how God wants us to respond to them. So Isaiah chapter 11 identifies the one whom the Holy Spirit will rest upon as the shoot sprouting out of the root of Jesse. We know Jesus comes from the line of David, from the line of Jesse, one of the many messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. The second, so that's the first explanation of the seven spirits of God. The, se the second explanation of this incorporates the permeating Jewish theological concept that there are seven archangels that surround the throne of God, along with a few different Bible passages. Hebrews 1.7 identifies angels as spirits of God. It says, and uh, regarding the angels, the spirits, he said he makes his angels winds or spirits, same word there, uh, and his ministers a flame of fire. These torches of fire could symbolically refer to the seven torches of fire, as you're reading through the book of Revelation, or seven angels before the throne of God in Revelation 4, 5. We read, out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So we can also see here that the seven spirits of God could refer to seven of his angels. This is why I said both meanings come to the same point. Whatever the interpretation is between these two viewpoints, the point Jesus is making here in Revelation 3 is the same. Whether the Holy Spirit or seven powerful angels, both are subservient to Jesus and that they only report what he wants them to report. Remember, Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 26, when the helper, the comforter, the advocate, the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, namely the Spirit of truth, who comes from the Father, he will testify about me. Jesus is once again attesting to the authority that he has here in Revelation 3, and he could also be referencing Zechariah 4.10. But these seven will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord roaming throughout the earth. There's that number seven again. Seven eyes of the Lord roaming throughout the earth. Jesus can see what, what, what Jesus is getting at here when he's giving this opening to the church at Sardis is that he can see everything. He can see everything that is going on. 
at the church in Sardis. He is, doing, he is seeing everything the church in Sardis is doing. On the stage that everybody can see publicly and behind the scenes. What's the chaos that's going on behind the curtain? Even if the church at Sardis thinks they're putting on a good show. The term seven stars in verse one is equally as difficult to explain, although we have some clues. In Jesus' greeting to the Apostle John in Revelation 1.20, he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Many Jewish people claimed that every nation was ruled by an angel, under God's dominion, and, would be and these angels would be judged by God by how they led their nation. This would be similar then to a concept that each church is overseen by a guardian angel. Again, though, however this is to be interpreted, the point is the same. Jesus, and only Jesus, has the ultimate authority in what's going on in the church any church, not just the church at Sardis, and not the church at Sardis. And the church at Sardis better do well to listen to what he says next. You can kind of catch the mood here that, about sort of what Jesus is going to be saying to the church at Sardis here. What does he say to them? He says, I know your works. He says in verse 1, I know your deeds. I know your works. Now, this is important because this is the only sort of commendation that Jesus gives to the church at Sardis. This is the only sort of commendation here. Everything else is admonition. The city of Sardis was located on an important trade route that ran east and west through the kingdom of Lydia. Because of this, its economy was driven by the trade of jewelry, dye, and textiles. And because of this, the city of Sardis itself was very, very wealthy. There was a lot of money going in and out of the city of Sardis. Another important aspect of Sardis was its religious tolerance derived from being a crossroads between many different cultures and its melting pot of religious beliefs. There was already a strong Jewish community there and not much persecution that existed there uh, the, uh, towards uh, the Christian community, if any. Why? It's not necessarily a good thing because everyone was focused on worldly things. They didn't care about what was going on religiously in the city of, of, of Sardis. Everybody there was focused on making as much money as they could. And because of that, it didn't matter what you believed. As long as what you were doing was helping them make money, they didn't care what you believed. In other words, two terms could be used to describe Sardis. Religiously tolerant because everybody was focused on worldly things, and financially well-off. Does this sound vaguely familiar to anybody here about maybe the place we live in right now and the focus 
that everybody uh, in this country, in the world really, uh, is, is focused on? On the surface, you would think this was a good thing. Religious tolerance and being financially well off. And yet, the church at Sardis is one of the two churches in Revelation judged the harshest by Jesus. He tells them, I know your works. I know what you've done. I know what you're doing for me. I know what you're doing for the kingdom. This is the same term Jesus uses for the Ephesian church, a term used to describe action to bring about an inner desire. So you have an inner desire, and then you put that into action. This is, again, this is the only sort of commendation Jesus gives to the church at Sardis. They were doing things. People around them saw they were doing things. People saw the churches active. We know this because of what Jesus says next to them. He says, you have the reputation, you have the name that you are alive. You have the reputation of being alive. As I read that and I thought about that and reflected on it, I came to a very sobering question. What is our reputation in our greater community? When people think of Fellowship Church, what do they think of? Do people in our community think of us as being alive? Even in the very least, do people think of us as being alive? Do your neighbors think of Fellowship Church as being alive? Do they see you, the average member, the average attender, giving them a reason to think of or see Fellowship Church as being alive? Do your neighbors see you inviting them to church? Do they see you being a part of the church? Do they see you wanting to do things and be a part of the church? Or if they were watching, which they are, do they only see you show up to the church maybe a couple of Sunday mornings a month, and that's about it? That's about as far as it goes. That's as far as the involvement is. It's a very sobering question, isn't it? Something we need to think about. This is what Jesus is rebuking the church in Sardis for. See, we can do more things and progress the church more and reach out to the community more, but that's if we actually want to. What does a person living in a luxurious country have? See, I often think of this question a lot. I, I always think about, how does somebody who doesn't have Jesus go through this life? It's hard for me to wrap my mind around. How does somebody who's seeing everything happening out in this world and seeing everything happening in this country and they don't have the hope of Jesus, how are they going through life? How do they have any kind of peace in this life? And this is what it boils down to. What people in a living in a luxurious country have are distractions. And that's how they get through life. They have distractions. They have options. 
They have television. They have every streaming service under the sun. They have everything they could ever want to binge watch at their fingertips. Other things to fill time with instead of thinking about the things that actually matter in life until there is no time left for the only actual purpose a believer in Jesus Christ has. And what is that? What is the commandment Jesus left with us before he sent it into heaven? That is to be and make other disciples. That's it. That's the command Jesus left with us. To be his disciple, live that way, grow that way, and to make other disciples. If the only thing the church in Sardis had going for it was a reputation of being alive, the sobering question we all have to ask of ourselves is what kind of reputation do we have right now? They at least had the reputation of being alive. What kind of reputation do we have? Are we excited about our church? Are we excited about sharing the only news they ever need to hear about Jesus Christ with them? Do our loved ones and neighbors see that, see that excitement? Do they see us inviting them to be a part of it? <laughs> Why would they want to be a part of something if they don't see you being excited about it? They're just not. Why are people going to want to be a part of our church? They're going to want to be a part of our church because first and foremost, the Holy Spirit will work in them, but also because they see you caring about it. They see you being excited about it. They see you wanting to be a part of things. They see you being excited about our church, what God has given for us to do, and be excited about wanting to do it. Not the elders, not the deacons, not the women's ministry committee. You. The church in Sardis prided themselves on their reputation for being alive. They prided themselves on it. Look at how good we are. But they were in fact, as Jesus says here in verse 1, dead. They were doing things, but they were doing them for the wrong reasons. And certainly not in connection with their spiritual growth. They didn't care how the way they were living their lives affected the whole church as one body. What is the prescription Jesus gives the church at Sardis? The solution, the answer, verse 2. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I, Jesus, have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Two words starts this, sec this verse off. Wake up. Become revived. Get excited. Get ex inspired. The word used here for wake up or be watchful is a word that is used to describe someone who keeps a lookout for a city. The night watch person must take responsibility. They must be active. They must 
stay awake. They must be watchful. If they're not, what's going to happen to the city? It's going to be attacked. It's going to fall. They have to be fully invested into what they're doing. They must be active. They must stay awake. And they must be watchful. This is an action word. This isn't a passive word. This isn't a, maybe if I feel like it, type of word. This is an action word. A watch person does not kind of show up to their post when they want to. They don't show up to their post only when they feel well rested. They don't show up to their post when there's nothing better to do. What, what is their post? It's their purpose. It's their mission. It's their job, right? We all need to ask ourselves the question, what is my mission in life? What is what I'm focusing on my life right now telling me about what my mission actually is, how it's playing out in real life in everyday ways? Is your mission your job? Is your mission your comfort? Is your mission your needs? Is your mission your fun? Or is your mission, as Jesus left us with that one command, to be a disciple and to make other disciples, to be active in your spiritual growth, to be active in Christ's church, building it up spiritually and physically, praying for it, going out and bringing more people into it, to be a part of Jesus' church and progressing, moving forward its mission. Jesus then tells the church at Sardis to strengthen whatever you have left. You're not too far gone. You have a, little, you have a glimmer of hope left. Strengthen what you have left. In other words, be inspired. You got to start somewhere. So start where you are and build off of that. The word used for strengthen means to support, to make stand, to establish securely. You guys remember seeing that gigantic castle behind me not too long ago? That was not just leaning up against this wall right here. If you looked behind there, there was a lot of gird work going on back there. A lot of two-by-fours attaching it to this thing and holding it upright. If not, <laughs> I'd probably be fearing for my life every time I got up on stage. <laughs> like one of those movies where the, the western town facade falls down on top of the person. But that wasn't the case. The people who built that castle made sure they built it strong, made sure they built it with a skeleton with a foundation to support it, to make it stand, to establish it securely. Exactly what that word meant. This is meant in direct opposition to flip-flopping back and forth, never really making a commitment, never really investing anything, and never really caring. We live in a culture and a society of eh, not caring. We need to be different. We need to show them we're different. See, church members and attenders can disagree on different things. But this is very explicit. 
A church cannot stand if there is no support. And who is the support? This church is not a building, right? Who is the church? Who is the support? All of us. Every single one of us. Jesus next tells the church at Sardis in verse 3, So remember what you have received and heard and keep it. And then he says, and repent. That's where it has to start. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. That's a threat. You know, the very famous line in a lot of movies, or you might have, somebody might have said it to you, is that a threat? Verse 3 is a threat. Jesus says, remember. Go back to the beginning. Go back to why you became a believer in Jesus. Become a part of his church. Why you became a part of his church in the first place. Go back. Remember. Take that back again. Make Jesus number one again. Forget about the distractions. Forget about the fears. Make Jesus Number one, again, and the movement, the moving forward of his church, the bride he loved so much that he died for her. Your mission in your life. You will see that once God sees you resisting temptation, once God sees you taking steps and making righteous decisions, sees you making your mission in life, the moving forward of his church, the strengthening, the building up of his church, he will bless this church, and he will bless you. Once God sees you taking responsibility for your life and your spiritual growth, and for his church, he will give you even greater things to take responsibility for, and will bless you even more for it. Got to go back. Got to go back to the beginning. We got to start somewhere. Again, in verse 3, we read, hold to it firmly. Keep it. Hold to it firmly. And repent. And what does repent mean? It means turning away from what you were focused on and turning towards Jesus turning away from the sin and being focused on sin and turning to Jesus. Two things need to happen to support your church's life and not support its death. You need to realize the importance of needing to change and needing to repent. And then we need to repent. We need to change. We all need to have a conversation between us and God and, and think about this question. How is my life and the way I'm living it affecting his church? Because this is not our church. This is not my church. This is his church. How is the way we're living on an everyday basis 
affecting his church. Because the Apostle Paul writes about that we are the body of Christ. We're all many members making up one body. We all deal with aches and pains and things in our bodies that don't work right, right? Is that just relegated to that one part of your body? No, it affects the entire body. So if we're not all looking to the Holy Spirit, seeking the Holy Spirit for our spiritual growth and surrendering every area of our lives to him and and, and, and how he wants us to be more involved in being more and more a part of his church, that's going to affect the whole body. It's not just you. It affects the whole body of Christ. Does that even enter our thinking? We're all part of one body. And everything we do in and through our lives, in and with our lives, affects the rest of that body. If I break my finger, I can't just be like, yeah, it's just one finger. I got nine other of of them, right? And just move on with my life. No, I'm going to be screaming in pain until that gets taken care of. Every member has a direct and powerful effect on the whole rest of the body. Think of your spiritual life and your spiritual growth and how it affects your church as a baby. We've been thinking and talking a lot about babies lately. If you only think of your needs, your sleep, what you want to be doing with your time, well, you, any free time, the baby is not going to be cared for and the baby will suffer, right? But if you nurture that baby, and yes, that means not being able to do everything you necessarily want and sac- making a lot of sacrifices, that baby will grow. And that baby will grow up and that baby will nurture babies of his or her own. We need to realize that we need to make our mission Jesus's commission to be and make disciples. And through that, moving the church forward through righteous living and making the church's needs, like a baby's needs, your needs. You might be thinking, yeah, But just because you think of the church that way, because you're the pastor, that doesn't mean I need to. Doesn't doesn't that just sound a little bit too radical? Not according to Jesus here. Not according to what we just read. Jesus even thinks of this so highly that he threatens them to get their attention. I'm going to read the uh, second half of verse 3 again. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. I'm going to come and straighten you out, Jesus says. I don't think any one of us here would want an upset, angry Jesus showing up to our church. Do we? No. According to historians, the Acropolis of Sardis or the most fortified part of the city, was never, 
ever taken in battle. It was, however, taken twice by stealth during the night while everyone else was sleeping. This is reminiscent of other times Jesus uses this illustration. Every other time it's in connection with Jesus' return or surprise judgment. Every other time Jesus uses this phrase that he will come like a thief in the night, it's always in connection with Jesus' return or surprise judgment. Do we want Jesus to bring surprise judgment on us, surprise discipline on us as a church because too many of us were asleep? Too many of us were asleep in his church? Lastly, Jesus has some words for those who have been living righteously and have been making the moving forward of his church at Sardis, their mission. Verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Jesus will reward those who commit themselves and live their lives for him and his mission. Worshippers of either Yahweh or even other pagan deities were expected to wear white when entering their respective temples. It was considered offensive to enter any kind of temple wearing dirty clothing. Are you clothing yourself in the white of righteousness? Or are you clothing yourself in the dirtiness of whatever you think you deserve to clothe yourself with? We've heard this saying before. There are always a few people in every church who do 99% of the work. And there are always a few people who care about how their lives affect the church. This is in direct, before you get mad at me, this is what we just read. This is literally what we just read. There are a few of you. And we see this in churches. There are always a few people in every church who do 99% of the work. And there are always a few people who care about how their lives affect his church. Are you one of the few? Or are you one of the ones who let the few do all the work and let them care about their spiritual lives? Does what you say and do negatively tear down the church, negatively tear down a fellow brother and sister, negatively tear down the leadership? Or does what you say and do positively build it all up? This is what those few in the church at Sardis had to look forward to, verses 5 through 6. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, says to the churches. There will be a presentation. 
presentation of eternal clothing, a presentation of their names in the scroll of life, and a presentation before God the Father and the angels. Here's what you can always look forward to. You may not receive much recognition for caring about your church and caring about Jesus' great commission to be and make disciples in this life. You may not receive much recognition. You may not get any recognition. But look at what the recognition you can look forward to will be. Recognition by Jesus Christ himself. What kind of recognition are you chasing now in this life? Recognition from humans now, no matter what area it's coming from, or recognition from Almighty God, both now and so much cooler later. Let us be a church, Jesus' church, who cares and cares deeply cares about how our individual lives as members affect this overall spiritual gauge of our church and cares about the movement forward of our church and cares about being involved in that moving forward as a church. Let us be a church who is inspired and excited about what God is doing. So much so that everyone around us can't help but see that in us and thinks we're a bunch of loons. Let us wake up. Let us wake up in ways we need to. Wake up in realizing our need to change where we need to change. And wake up to know the reward coming to those who do that. Be eternally minded. This world is passing away. It doesn't matter how many things the government bans, this world is still going to end. This world is going to end in flames. By God's plan. Everything we think we're building up in this world is going to end. We need to all be eternally minded with our lives. What are we building up? Are we building up treasures on earth? As Jesus flat out says, are just going to pass away and where the thief can break in and steal them and they're just going to rot? Or are we building up treasures in heaven where nothing can touch them? And at the end of everything, Jesus himself will present them to us. Let our reputation as Fellowship Church, be one that's not only alive and excited, but also be alive and excited. Doing things for the right reasons, doing things for the glorification of Jesus, being eternally minded, growing and fellowshipping with one another as we all grow together as one body, and being and making disciples, not only focusing, seeking God for our spiritual growth, but going out and bringing others into his body, into his body of Christ. I know this was a tough message. It was a tough message for the church at Sardis to hear. It's a tough message for any one of us to hear, any church to hear. Let us take it to heart and let us live our lives in glorification 
of our Savior and our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for how powerful it is. I pray that it will cause any one of us who need to wake up to do just that. That if we've just been sort of in a rut uh, and not really caring about growing in you, seeking you, deepening, deepening our relationship with you through your word, through prayer, I pray that we would wake up, that your Holy Spirit would work in each and every one of us and bring us to that point, to point out what in our lives still needs to be surrendered to you, and then to, to do that, and to know that we're all many members making up one body, and our spiritual growth and what we're doing for your church affects the whole rest of the church, the whole rest of the body. This is your church. I pray that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to be the church you want us to be. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.